I have Darcy Patrick on the show today, and Darcy's been on the show a couple of times to talk to me about the, you know, his his struggle with uh, with depression and how that has led him to write a series of books to help people identify and develop tools to deal with um, depression, anxiety, and other uh, other mental health issues they're dealing with. And of course, this is a very important time for that. So Darcy has written uh, Why I Run, which was his story, guided meditation, creative writing. And today we're going to talk about his mo- most recent book, The Big Let Go. Darcy, there's a few things I love about your books, but one of them is, is that you've written short books. You know, they're around 170 odd pages. So nobody has to sit down with this, you know, large missive and and try to make their way through. It's something that would be extremely difficult for someone who's dealing with any kind of anxiety and depression because your your focus is is uh, very can be very short because that anxiety is taking you somewhere else. So why did you decide that you would write these books um, in in sort of bite sized chunks and in a logical progression? Well, when I was in therapy, I was always told to read these books and they were always super thick, filled with over analytical words that I didn't understand. And quite honestly, they scared the crap out of me and everything that was in them, I thought I would be doing wrong because I couldn't understand any of the language. To me, all these books seemed like they were written by psychiatrists and therapists to impress their friends and not actually help anyone. So when I sat down to write, I wanted to make all my books, number one, really relatable, easy to understand, and never a hard read. And that meant not having a big, huge paperback book uh, carrying around with you um, and having to feel that you'll never really get through it and being intimidated by it. So also my writing process always took place as I progressed. Every single book that I wrote, I wrote as I progressed in my mental health. Um, So there was no research other than what I was going through at each time and how I was learning to use each tool in my own way. Um, So that's kind of my writing process and why I made all the books flow into each other is actually physically how I learned how to cope with my mental health from the beginning, why I run into the creative writing book, into the meditation book and into the big let go. I should have met, mentioned um, in the in the uh, introduction and introducing you, Darcy, that you're also a speaker. You're teaching the courses to people be, uh, nationwide. And your most recent job, I think you started just this week, is a peer support worker at St. Joe's Hospital in Hamilton. So you really have progressed uh, along a road of, you know, I'm sure when you wrote Why I Run, you you never thought that that you would be continuing in writing books and and moving more into the uh, mental health field. You were working at a music store. You've got a background as a musician, and you've been able to trans, you know, transition into something that you really love and care about. So. Let's talk about a little bit about what's happening now. CMHA, Canadian Mental Health Association, who you do a lot of work with, has released a survey that was done, um, I think, into January, and it shows that 
percent of Canadians are feeling anxious or worried, bored, stressed, lonely or isolated, and sad. Um, as well, at the same time, the Canadian Women's Foundation has come out with a survey that says mothers are at the breaking point. They just, we're all at, at that point where we just don't know where to go. What, where do you see that in terms of the book, Letting Go, your, um, or sorry, The Big Let's Go, which is the, the most recent, and I think it's right now maybe very identifiable for people who are hanging on to a situation they don't know what to do. Yeah. I mean, this pandemic is something that none of us ever dreamt was going to happen. I mean, I remember being laid off work and having to uh, to come home and, and my therapist was doing all of her sessions online and I was dead against it. And I didn't want to do any virtual anything. I told her, I said, you know what, this is going to be over in like two weeks and then I'll just come back into your office and we'll just continue on. And she right. said, Darcy, this isn't, this isn't going away. This is going to be here for like a long time. So you're going to have to, you know, get over your fear of doing virtual things because you're not going to see me for two years. So, you know, I really had to accept it. And I think that a lot of people just don't have the tools to deal with isolation, with losing their jobs, with homeschooling. I mean, you look at this and in my first book, I talk about putting all my emotion into a barrel and it was overflowing over the top out of control. Everybody's barrels are being filled right to the top. and Nobody has a clue how to drain it, how to deal with what's going on. So yeah, people who were already mentally isolated because of their depression and anxiety and mental health struggles are really isolated now because they don't have anywhere to turn. And people who thought that they had the world by the strings, that were working full-time jobs, that had it all together, their rugs are being pulled out from underneath them and they have no tools to cope. Um, yeah, so I, yeah, none, none of what you listed, none of it surprises me. Yeah, um, one of the things that's holding people back, and you mentioned that, People who are already experiencing or struggling with mental health issues, for example, you know, anxiety, um, depression, that feeling of helplessness and isolation, they, they're a lot of the people, um, as you said, either had a low lying level of this and didn't recognize it, um, or, you know, did, but it's become so magnified by what has happened. And one of the one of the the first thing you talk about in your book is stigma and i know from what, from what i've been reading that stigma is holding people back from seeking help they realize they need it but they're afraid to reach out and when you talked about stigma there's there's two sides to it that that you talk about which yeah, is interesting, right? Yeah. So there's the person and the the internal and the external, I guess, is I think is how you how you put it. Yeah, because there's, you know, people, you know, mention stigma all the time and say it needs to be broken. It's become kind of a buzzword where nobody actually understands what it actually yes. is. They just say, we got to get rid of it, but they don't know what it is and how it affects people. So my goal in writing the stigma chapter was to actually show people 
the results that stigma has on people who are struggling with mental health and the people on the outside who don't know about it, loved ones, family members, people on the street, um, because it stops everything dead in its track, you know, and the shared emotions, like once we really look into it and realize that a lot of the emotions that the person who is struggling with are shared with the people on the outside, you know, they're, they're the same. Once we get past that and really educate ourselves on what stigma is and why it holds people back, then we have better understanding of what we need to do to stop it, to go move forward. So the goal of that whole stigma chapter is to kind of open everyone's eyes and realize like, wow, this is everywhere when it comes to mental health. I, I think you've probably had the same situation, but most people think of stigma as let's get rid of stigma and it's from a societal level. Let's bring everybody on side so that so that the public and everybody out there understands that mental health or mental illness is an illness of the brain. It's not something to be frightened of. But both of us, we've both spoken at Family Support Network and the stigma that exists within a family um, is is uh, so personal, right? And and if you look again at, at the two types of stigma, the people who are struggling stigmatize themselves. The family member or the loved one who's there can also feel stigmatized themselves. So they're feeling personal stigma. They don't want anybody to know that... Um, you know, that there's a, a problem with a loved one or that there's anybody experiencing mental illness in their family. And I remember meeting um, a couple, sorry, it was a woman, and her husband had been depressed, I think, for around seven years. She had barely left her house in seven years because her husband didn't want anybody, even his close family, to know what he was going through. And I, I was so taken aback, I, I couldn't believe it, that, that that's out there. And I think that that's what you've been finding out in, in the people that you're meeting through the books that you're writing and the courses that, that you're teaching. Yeah, 100%. In the book, I talk about uh, a book signing that I was at where a lady came over and asked me to sign a copy of my creative writing for the Mind, Body and Soul book. And she said it was for her husband and that her husband, you know, loved why I run and he read it all the time and it was helping him. And he actually started seeing a therapist. And I looked at her and I said, well, where's your husband? I would love to meet him. And she said, well, he's in the toy section. And he wanted me to pick up the book because no one can find out about what he's going through. So if you can just sign the book to him, that would be great. So as they were leaving the store, the husband walked by me. And he actually looked over and he waved and smiled. And I waved back to him and he mouthed the words, thank you to me. And I was like, oh my gosh, how strong is this? That even though he read my books, he knows what I went through. He wanted my second one to help. And he still couldn't just come over to me and talk to me. That's how scary and how strong it can be. And yeah, like it's just everywhere. And I think in the book, you know, I go through a bunch of different shared emotions. I think it was fear, humiliation, guilt were like the, the three main ones that I wanted to, to put focus on. 
and use examples of how they're felt by both the people who are struggling and with, you know, if you want to say broader, like society or family members, right? So the big let go. Where did that come from? And what does the big let go mean? So I actually looked this up in my journal because I was really, really uh, enticed about where the title came from. The Big Let Go was written, the title was written in 2015. Um, and it was written shortly after I had a EMDR session with my therapist. Um, and I had to let go of, of a work situation, which I read about in the book. Um, and it had great meaning because it was a big let go. I had to do it. So, you know, flash forward and I had to write it because it meant so much to me and it had to draw on every tool that I learned to use. And I had to do it the same way I did why I run with personal experiences, breaking it down so I could teach people the steps because one of the things that I really like is when you're trying to help someone or they're trying to help you, or when you witness someone trying to help someone, they always have great ideas. And they say, you just need to set a boundary or you need to forgive and move on. And you need to do this and you need to do that. And it's like, show me how. Because everybody has good advice and nobody shows people actually how to do it. So my goal was to take all that stuff, right? That the chapters are about radical acceptance, forgiveness, changing your perspective, you know, and putting it, setting boundaries and making it so people can learn actually how to do it. Yeah, and I, and I think that's exactly why the man who was hiding in the toy, toy section found it so, your book, Why I Run, so helpful because he would have identified with you, not identifying something that was clinical. He would have identified with, with you, Darcy. Um, okay, so control. I... What I've learned about in in the times of COVID is that control is something that we really don't have and at any time in our life. And we try. We try and try and try to control. I know that, that um, trying to control and, and not being able to control can lead people to a, an obsessive compulsive disorder so they control what they can. They control how the dishwasher is loaded. They control how the towels are folded. They're all of these small things in life that, that are controllable for them. But now we're in this situation where, and I think the statistics at the beginning show what's happening. We're at a situ situation where everyday information is different. And we're, we're all trying to not hold on to that idea that we can control a situation. And I think that that's probably a blown a bigger proportion than our everyday issue with control but we all have control issues every day in our lives so how do you identify those because you can't work on them if you don't for know me, what they are yeah for me you know it always went back to 
what I was cycling around in my head. And it always went back to how my body was reacting, how my breath was reacting, and how, you know, I just didn't want things to go a certain way. I, re I like using this example when I'm teaching the Big Let Go course. I remember when they changed the way we dial our phone number <laughs> numbers in Niagara, when we had to add the area code. And I remember so many people being pissed off that they had to dial that, those three numbers before they dialed their numbers. And I was one of them and I hated it. So when they changed it, I was going to the phone and I'm like, I'm dialing my friend's number and I'm not adding 905. They can screw themselves. Well, guess what? phone didn't work it yeah didn't so so in the end who was screwing oh. themselves right you couldn't yeah. reach your so friends guess, yeah so guess what now it's natural we dial the area code without thinking and it's no big deal but back then it was like man there's no way i'm doing this i was fighting it and fighting it so you know i really discovered that a lot of the things that i was fighting and trying to control there really was no use to it and I also realized that when I let go of that control, that a lot of personal growth, both in myself and in other people in my life, started to really flourish. And I started to see things that I didn't see before because I didn't blind myself with thinking that I can control it. I think that that is the big thing is that you focus so much on on something. And that that's so small. I'm from Toronto and I remember when I was actually living here, so really it didn't make any difference to my life. But they added 905. It was always 416. The entire time I lived there, the, the area code was 416. And they changed it to 905. And I thought, yeah, those people who live in 905, they don't live in Toronto. They don't because it's 905. Uh, and then they put in 647. And I was like, okay, I'm glad I left town because <laughs> I wouldn't be able <laughs> to cope. Like and now there's like two eight nines and like, there's like just tons of stuff and we look at it and we don't even think about yeah. it. yeah or then or the number comes in and you think oh my god i'm afraid i'm afraid there's anxiety right i'm afraid because i don't know what that area code is so i'm not going to answer the phone because i don't know where those people are calling me from sure. and this kind of um it it goes with and i think radical acceptance and setting boundaries are two things that in a way, um, don't they have to sort of come together and meld at, at the same time? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. When I teach the course, uh, The Big Let Go, I run the two directly into each other. So radical acceptance was like a big turning point in my life because there are things that we all see and we color the way we want them to be and we don't actually see them for what they are, accept them so we can move on, right? See the effect that it's having on us. See the effect, the long-term effect that it may be having on us. Accepting it and moving forward. So radical acceptance was this huge hill that I had to climb because there's so many things in my life that I had to actually fully accept and then learn how to deal with it. So. There, I like to think of it in two ways when we think about radical acceptance. You look at a situation that's happening or a situation that happened that's still affecting you and you go, can I live within it or do I got to get out? And for me, a huge radical acceptance came at my place of work when 
I was vomiting every day before I went to work, that the stress of my workplace was having such an impact on my life that I was physically ill from it. Six years of being physically ill by going to the same workplace and having to face the same stress and the same situations over and over again without change happening. So no matter what I tried to do to control that situation, nothing was ever going to change. So I had to accept that. And then I had to find a way to live within it. So I dropped down to part-time and I cast away all the things that I felt I had gained. Benefits, four weeks of holiday time, a pension, everything that normal people hold so dear to them meant nothing to me if I was vomiting every day and I was sick because of my workplace. And you felt trapped. So I had, yeah, I was trapped. So I had to let it go. I had to accept the fact that this was not going to change. Nobody was going to be looking out for me except for myself. So boom, I dropped down to part-time. I got rid of my position. I cast all that stuff away. And all of a sudden, I'm vomit-free. All of a sudden, I'm not holding weight that I did before from stress. My body's not in a state of panic. The healthiest thing I did for myself was to leave that position. And at the same time, I set boundaries. So old situations, even though I dropped down to part-time, old situations weren't going to cramp, make their way into my life. So I had to go through and go, okay, I'm going to set a boundary. These are the steps that I'm going to use. So we have to accept what's going on. And then even in setting boundaries, I love, I love the, the one thing that I, I have in the setting boundaries is where there's questions that you ask yourself, right? And you have to answer them honestly. And, you know, it's, it's so important to be honest when you're setting a boundary because it has to mean something in order for it to actually work. That's the whole thing is realizing that you keep saying yes to things that you don't want to. I'd like to share like these questions that you ask yourself because I think they're very important. So question one, did this have a negative impact on me? Yes. Has this happened before in my life? Is it a reoccurring event? Yes. Do I enjoy feeling this way? No. Do I really want this to happen again? No. So these questions are the proof that a boundary needs to be set. And the, the, the biggest step is when we say no and letting that uncomfortable silence sit, it may be like 20 seconds, maybe less, but it'll seem like an hour. But if you keep talking after you say no, when you set a boundary, it lessens its effect. And it becomes meaningless if you keep rambling. And then the people realize that it's not that big of a boundary that they can still ask it. Where can we find your books? My books are on Amazon. They're on Indigo. You can go to my website, darcypatrick.com. And there's links to buy it. There's even an audio book now for why I run and for my guided meditation. Uh, the Big Let Go, I'm in the midst of recording as well. So that'll hopefully be out by the end of summer. And they're all on Audible and on iTunes. But there's links on my websites if you wish to, uh, to purchase any of my books and learn more about me. 
Darcy, thank you so much for coming on and congratulations on your new job. Thank you so much for having me, Janice. It's always a pleasure.